Greetings, greetings, fellow Who-gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. We are now up to the 14th book in the line, published in 1975 in the month of May. It is Terence's Dick's second straight book, and it's the second one released in three months. It's not my top favorite, but an interesting thing happened to me when I pulled this book off of my shelf. Now, when I say not one of my top favorites, for most of my childhood, every Target book that I read was my favorite for a short time. But there were some that I read over and over and over again, and then there were some that I read even more frequently than that. Terror of the Autons is written probably a little bit above my reading level when I was 11 or 12, so it was one of the books that I read very, very often, but not quite as often as that. So when I pulled it off my shelf and opened it up, I was shocked to see that this is one of my books that has Terrence Dix's autograph in it, and I immediately got a lump in my throat to Jason Terrence Dix. He wrote with a little flourish under his last name. I met him once, and that was at the Long Island Doctor Who convention in November 2014. That was his only appearance at one of the Long Island Doctor Whos, I think. And I grabbed probably four or five of my Target novelizations from home and brought them to the convention to have him sign them. I don't remember off of the top of my head which ones. I was surprised to find that this was one of the ones because, while I like it a lot, as we'll find out shortly, It's not one of my sentimental favorites, and it doesn't have any particular deeper meaning from my childhood. I suspect the reason that I brought this one for him to sign was that it's the novelization of the Master's very first story, Roger Delgado's very first story. So I can't quite trace what I was thinking seven and a half years ago, but that's probably the reason. And as I come across other Terrence Dix autograph books in my collection, I will certainly tell you about it as each episode comes up for discussion here on Doctor Who Literature. Next week, I will be at the Gallifrey One Convention in Los Angeles. I am a near annual attendee there, and I'll be speaking on a couple of panels, one about the 13th Doctor and one about the new adventures. If you go over to the Trap One archives, I did a lengthy two-and-a-half-hour documentary on the new adventures last year in the summer of 2021, I think July. And if you want to give that a listen, I'll give a link in the show notes, and I hope to have a chance to discuss that a little bit at the new adventures panel. Although, of course, there are going to be many people on the panel, and we only have an hour to speak, so I will not be able to repeat everything that I said in the podcast. Uh, Lastly, you've of course heard of the uh, major loss in market valuation suffered by Spotify after the backlash to Joe Rogan's podcast. First Neil Young, and then Joni Mitchell, and then many, many other performers pulled their material from Spotify as a platform, and Spotify's share value crashed. And I'm not going to join the exodus. not least for selfish reasons, because this is a podcast with a very limited reach so far, and I don't want to risk losing uh, the audience that I have, and I do appreciate all you guys for sticking there with me. I think it's better for me to stay here with my occasional political jabs mixed in with the Doctor Who commentary, and serve as a more factually correct counterpoint to Mr. Rogan. 
Of course, if you feel differently, let me know, then I can certainly explore alternatives. But in the meantime, let's talk about Doctor Who and the terror of the Autons. Let's get to it. Doctor Who and the Terror of the Autons, televised as Terror of the Autons, written by Terence Dix, from a teleplay by Robert Holmes, televised in January 1971, and published in May 1975. The evil master leered out at the doctor, and triumphantly pointed out of the cabin window, the many-tentacled nesting monster, spearhead of the second Auton invasion of Earth, crouched beside the radio tower. Part crab, part spider, part octopus, its single huge eye blazed with alien intelligence and deadly hatred. Can the doctor outwit his rival Time Lord, the Master, and save the Earth from the Nestine horror? Doctor Who and the Terror of the Autons is almost a perfect synthesis of the first 13 novelizations. It's by Terence Dix, novelizing a Robert Holmes story, and is written very close to the style of Malcolm Hulk, the other mainstay of the early target going. Dix does two things here that are positively Hulkian. First, there's a chapter titled The Deadly Daffodils, which sounds almost exactly like the kind of Hulk and Slash or Dix script that you'd have expected to see broadcast on the Avengers a decade previously. More importantly, you have the characterization. Terror of the Autons is the novelization, of the debut story of Joe Grant and the Master. We've seen both these characters in Target books before, both introduced out of sequence in Hulk's Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon, but Dix now gets to reintroduce them, the Master first and then Joe. When we meet the Master, it's first through the eyes of a small-time thug who happens to run a circus, Lou Ross, who goes by the professional name Luigi Rossini. Dix writes up Ross's cynical biography, and this reads quite a lot like the expedition that Hulk would give to his secondary villains. Quote, Rossini had his own way of making money. He hired only the deadbeats, the down-and-outs of the circus profession, those who, for one reason or another, could never get a job with the big, posh outfits. Some were too old or too incompetent. Some, like Tony the Strongman, were on the run from the police. Rossini hired them all and pay them starvation wages, knowing they wouldn't dare ask for more. All the profits went into his own pockets, paying for the flashy suits, the diamond rings, and the big cigars that fitted Rossini's picture of himself as international showman. Anyone who objected was soon beaten into submission by Rossini's big fists. He had a right to his perks. He was the boss, wasn't he? Rossini's world is soon upended, when the master lands his TARDIS on the circus pitch, disguised as a horse box, which Dix, of course, describes as gleaming, in contrast to the shabby derelict vehicles that populate the Circus Rossini. And Rossini is both frightened of and in contempt of the Master, all at once. Quote, Rossini saw a man of medium height, dressed in neat, dark clothing. He had a rather sallow face with a small pointed beard, heavy eyebrows, and dark burning eyes. With a sudden flash of superstitious fear, Rossini thought the stranger looked like the devil. Rossini took a grip of himself. No funny-looking foreigner was going to frighten him. The master speaks in a deep voice, quote, full of authority. And we feel Rossini go under the master's formidable hypnosis from Rossini's point of view. That's the end of Rossini's POV for the rest of the book, though. 
Once he's put under the influence, we only ever see him again through Dix's omniscient observer. And soon we get a more formal introduction to the Roger Delgado Master. The Doctor is warned of the Master's arrival by a Time Lord, dressed like Patrick McNee in the Avengers, floating in midair. The Doctor identifies this Time Lord as a member of the High Council of the Time Lords. We also learn that the Master's name is a long string of mellifluous syllables, one of the strange Time Lord names that are never disclosed to outsiders. End quote. Dix also takes the time to fill us in on who the Master is meant to be, presumably drawn from his own papers as one of the Master's unofficial co-creators. First, the Master's genesis, envisioned as a Moriarty figure to the Doctor Sherlock Holmes, is openly quoted here, as the Brigadier refers to the Master as, quote, a sort of criminal mastermind. But we also get the following mission statement, incorporated into the text. Quote, The Master was a rogue Time Lord. So too was the Doctor, in a way. But all his interventions in the course of history were on the side of good. The Master intervened only to cause death and suffering, usually in the pursuit of some scheme to seize power for himself. More than that, he seemed to delight in chaos and destruction for its own sake, and liked nothing more than to make a bad situation worse. Already he had been behind several interplanetary wars, always disappearing from the scene before he could be brought to justice. If ever he were caught, his fate would be far worse than the Doctor's exile. Once captured by the Time Lords, the Master's life stream would be thrown into reverse. Not only would he no longer exist, he would never have existed. It was the severest punishment in the Time Lord's power. This latter bit, I think, was informed by the War Games, which was written before this book but not novelized until four or five years later. Alas, we've never seen the Time Lords do this again, and the Master is still out there, somewhere. We've already seen Joe Grant before in the novelizations. But this is the adaptation of her first real time out. And so we get, for the second time in a Target book, Joe meeting the Doctor. Terence is not quite as sympathetic to the character as Mac Hulk had been, and describes her faintly tongue-in-cheek. Quote, As Joe Grant walked along the corridors of Unit HQ, she was bubbling over with an uneasy mixture of excitement and apprehension. At last, she had achieved her ambition. She was a fully-fledged member of Unit, the United Nations Intelligence Task Force. The fact that she was the newest and most junior member of that top-secret organization did nothing to spoil her pleasure. But on the other hand, she was about to meet the doctor, and the thought of the coming encounter was enough to give her a mild attack of the shakes. In Doomsday Weapon, Jo was patronized by her influential uncle when she asked for espionage training, but nevertheless, she persisted. Here, however, she's not quite in on the joke when the brigadier foists her off on the doctor, noting only that there had, quote, been something almost amused in his manner, end quote. When Joe finally meets the Doctor, as on TV, written by Robert Holmes, he's shockingly rude to her, and that is most stereotypical. It's interesting to note that Dix has Pertwee rubbing his chin not one, not two, not three, but five times in this novelization. Far and away, Dix's Pertwee chin-rubbing record to date. Anyway, the Doctor's not ready for a new assistant. Quote, the doctor looked down at her in speechless astonishment. He saw a very small, very pretty girl with fair hair and blue eyes, who looked as if she should still be at school. She seemed almost on the point of tears. I'm sorry, my dear, he said gently. I really don't think you'd be suitable. Later on, the doctor likens Joe to, quote, a puppy, desperately hoping someone will throw her another stick. This is a line that has not aged very well. Dix also observes that Joe believes, quote, 
modern intelligence methods fail to make proper allowance for women's intuition. And no, I'm not quite convinced that line is a compliment. Dix also gives us special insight into the warmly antagonistic relationship between the Doctor and the Brigadier. After Dix as story editor and Barry Letts as producer began to remake the exiled to Earth format of Doctor Who in season 8, their first full season together, the Brigadier's characterization on TV would become slightly less rigidly military, and some would say, not necessarily me, increasingly more buffoonish. Here, though, we find the Doctor and the Brigadier in equilibrium, and of course, it's hilarious. Quote, the Doctor and the Brigadier were engaged in one of their not infrequent arguments. Good friends though they were, their temperaments were so utterly different that the occasional clash was inevitable. This time, the subject of dispute was the missing Nestine Energy Unit. The Brigadier, aware that he should never have allowed it to go to the museum, knew that he was really in the wrong. As a result, he was naturally insisting that he was completely in the right. End quote. Dix often got a lot of flack from longtime Doctor Who readers for writing novelizations that were too short or too rushed, but it's hard to question the talents of a guy who was able to compress years and years worth of Pertwee's and Nicholas Courtney's formidable TV chemistry into a paragraph this short and yet this note perfect. Also, because the dialogue in the book is so much more extensive than what we got on television, presumably scripted by Holmes but trimmed for timing reasons, we also get this exchange after the Doctor rapidly figures out what the Master is up to at the Space Telescope Station. Quote, the Director broke off, looking at the Doctor resentfully. There really seems to be very little I can tell you. There never is, muttered the Brigadier. The plot begins in earnest when the Master, using Rossini as a strong-armed thug, steals a Nestine sphere left over from the Auton invasion. In the book, dialogue is retained, showing that the Doctor tested that sphere from time to time as a barometer to gauge if the Nestines had returned to Earth. This is Terence getting in a victory lap, triumphantly describing Pertwee's first story, which of course was his own first novelization. In the hands of Robert Holmes, the Autons' second invasion of Earth was no mere photocopy of Spearhead. There were different plot beats and a much more jovial turn. The comedic poacher, Sam Seely, took up quite a bit of time in the origin story, but here instead an innocent scientist becomes a victim of the Master's killing joke very quickly. Terence digs into the mind of this character in a passage worthy of Malcolm Hulk himself. Quote, Albert Googe, a melancholy, balding, bespectacled scientist, drove slowly and cautiously, as always, along the narrow country lane, plunged in his usual gloom and lost to the beauty of the scene around him. It was a fine day in early summer. Fields and hedges lay bathed in sunshine, birds sang, langs gambled, and Albert Googe worried about the quality of his packed lunch. As Googe natters on for the third time about his hard-boiled eggs, his colleague, the equally doomed Professor Phillips, quote, hadn't heard a word of all this. Googe was always grumbling about something, and most of his colleagues had stopped listening long ago. Here in this tiny cabin, they were listening to the voices of the stars, and old Googe was grumbling about boiled eggs. Googe on TV was played by the lugubrious Andrew Staines, who'd return again in Pertby's final TV story, although Alan Willow's internal illustration looks nothing at all like Staines. But Dix goes from comedy to tragedy in narrating Googe's death from his own POV one of the few times in the books that we feel what Death by the Master's Tissue Compression Eliminator feels like. He caught a quick glimpse of a bearded man in the doorway, covering him with a squat, oddly-shaped gun. There was a crackle of power, and Gooch felt as if his whole body was being clamped in a giant fist and squeezed, squeezed. 
he seemed to be shrinking, rushing down the wrong end of a telescope into blackness. The Master has plenty of henchmen to keep him busy in this story, even after Rossini's usefulness ends. The main dupe utilized by the Master is Rex Farrell. On TV, Michael Wisher, making the second of what would basically be annual appearances on the show for most of the 1970s. Rex is the weak son of a domineering father, the inept head of a failing plastics factory. Dix, as Hulk often did before him, constantly resounds the theme of just how inadequate Rex feels. Quote, Rex settled himself in the big chair. Somehow he always felt lost in it, swallowed up by its sheer size. As a child visiting his father in the same office, he had been allowed for a treat to sit in the big chair and swivel it to and fro. He braced himself, sitting up straighter. Things were different now. At last, his father had retired, and he was the boss. End quote. But not for very long. The cunningly disguised Colonel Masters arrives, having selected Farrell's factory as a spearhead, pardon the pun, for the Auton invasion, because Farrell, weak and indecisive, would make an excellent pawn in the Masters' game. Dix reminds us, quote, dominated by his father all his life, conditioned to obedience from early childhood, Farrell was an easy victim. But the master, of course, henchman or no henchman, won't find such an easy time of it once he meets up with the doctor. After the break, the second Auton invasion brings two things, daffodils and terror, and I'm fresh out of daffodils. I do hope you can uh, <laughs> spare a moment or two, Doctor. Sarcasm always was a weak point with you, wasn't it? May I say that I think you look quite ridiculous in those clothes? I am travelling incognito. Oh, why? We Time Lords don't care to be conspicuous. Some of us, that is. Now look, if you've come down here merely to be rude... I came to warn you. An old acquaintance has arrived on this planet. Huh? One of our people? The Master. That jackanapes, all he ever does is cause trouble. He'll certainly try to kill you, Doctor. The Tribunal thought that you ought to be made aware of your danger. How very kind of them. You are incorrigibly meddlesome, Doctor, but we've always felt that your hearts are in the right places. But be careful. The Master has learnt a great deal since you last met him. I refuse to be worried by a renegade like the Master. He's a... he's an unimaginative plodder. His degree in cosmic science was of a higher class than yours. Yes, well, uh, <clears throat> yes, well, I, I was a late developer. Would you call that little surprise unimaginative? The novelization of Terror of the Autons, coming out immediately after Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, is the first time we've gotten back-to-back Terence Dix books on the schedule. It's not quite the first of his soon-to-be-standard 3333 books, a four-part story novelized in 12 chapters, with the cliffhangers falling neatly every third chapter at the end of 3, 6, and 9. As with Giant Robot, though, there's one stray nonconformist here, the episode 3 cliffhanger, which falls in the middle rather than the end of chapter 9. Fast forward a couple of years when the release schedule is dominated by five or six straight 12-chapter Terrence books, and this might look like a glimpse into a slightly more ordinary future. But this is still Terence with remarkable attention to detail and at the top of his game. Certainly the action scenes are more vivid than what was realized in studio when Joe, hypnotized by the Master, attempts to detonate a bomb in the Master's unit lab. The Doctor resolves the cliffhanger with a neat bit of comic Venusian Aikido. 
The doctor lifted Joe off her feet and literally threw her across the room. Hold her, he yelled. Joe cannoned into the two soldiers like a well-aimed ball in a skill alley. All three collapsed in a tangle of arms and legs. End quote. The unit Autons fight at the beginning of Episode 3 is also expanded, with an Auton being blown up, something not realized on TV. When the Doctor and Brigadier encounter a stray Auton locked into a safe later in Episode 3, Terence milks the moment in print by having the thing dismembered with a grenade and by having a heavy desk upturned onto its still-blasting arm gun. An explosion seen largely off-screen in Episode 2 is more vivid on the printed page, leaving behind a smoking circle of ash where the trees had once stood." End quote. In addition to the expanded dialogue and action, Terence adds a non-stop series of witty asides into his character's thought processes. When learning of the Master's hypnotic skills, for example, the Brigadier, quote, had visions of a platoon of hypnotized secret agents on his hands. And when the doctor observes that the brigadier is likely too stubborn to be hypnotized, Lepper Stewart, quote, stroked his mustache thoughtfully, trying to work out whether or not this was a compliment. Joe, trying to apologize after the bomb incident, tells herself that it's difficult to know what to say to someone you've tried to blow up. And Dix adds another dash of Hulkian critique at capitalist consumerism of the deadly Auton daffodils flooding the market, quote, nobody really worried. The public was getting something for nothing. And you can't complain about that. Not all of Dix's editions are salutary. Written in 1975, editors and publishers would still not flinch when the face of an ugly plastic doll is described in horrifically insensitive racial terms, as are regrettably used here. Less offensively, but no less bizarre, Captain Yates gets a whole paragraph wondering about why army regulations prohibit him from sporting a beard, mustache, or other whiskers. Dix also spends more time with Rex Farrell, the Master's principal victim in the story, and we learn of his abused child upbringing. Quote, Farrell Sr. was a big, tough, self-made man who had bullied his way to the top through sheer determination. Even in his 60s, he was an imposing figure. Unable to accept that Rex hadn't inherited his own strength, he had always treated him harshly in an attempt to put some spine into the boy. As a natural result, Rex had grown up feeble and indecisive, always living in his father's shadow. However, at the same time, even the doomed Farrell Sr. loved his son, quote, in his own way, and he was genuinely distressed to see the boy looking so desperately haggard. Farrell's wife, presumably also battered in the past, now got on, quote, remarkably well, because 30 years of marriage to her, forceful husband had convinced her that he was always right. After Farrell's death, Dick sympathizes with the widow because, quote, Without her husband, life was as empty as the big house she lived in. Beyond the tertiary characters, Dix also makes good use of the circus that was hired to play Rossini's company in episode 2. Here, the doctor is delighted to ride a carousel and affectionately pats his horse on the nose after riding. We learn that the kidnapped Professor Phillips, Christopher Burgess, who was also invited back for Planet of the Spiders, was pressed into service by the master as a, quote, circus clown, stumbling about in the ring with the others, accepting the buckets of water and the blows and the kicks without complaint. It had amused the master to degrade a brilliant scientist into a mindless buffoon. Under the influence of the master's hypnotic power, Phillips had almost forgotten who or what he was. Terence is at his best when telling us about the doctor's hidden depths. Rossini, bullied by the doctor, even after the latter is tied to a chair, Quote, 
felt suddenly frightened by this tall, stern man, who could coolly issue threats and warnings while lashed to a chair. The doctor tries to escape from the chair using muscle contraction techniques learned from his old friend Houdini, the detail Dix also uses in Planet of the Spiders, the novelization directly after this one. Or at least the novelization written by Terence directly after this one, I should say. In another anachronism, the doctor recognizes a Sontaran fragmentation grenade, even though Holmes didn't invent the Sontarans for another three years after writing this story, but they were brand new when the book was written. The doctor, although described as a strange outlandish figure, has something very reassuring about him. Unquote. He also gets an added moment of charm solely in the book, reassuring Mrs. Farrell that her husband's death wasn't in vain. Quote, he was one of the first casualties in a sort of war. What you've told us tonight may help to prevent many more deaths. Terence adds extra time getting into the master's head, even as we see the renegade Time Lord, in a mood of rare amiability. Rex Farrell finds that the master was by no means immune to a little flattery. But boy, does Terence twist in the knife every time the master fails in an effort to kill the doctor. One example. Having twice failed to kill the doctor, the master was salving his enormous vanity by pretending he'd planned things that way all along. Or, to preserve his enormous vanity, he was forced to pretend that his attempts to kill the doctor were merely an amusing game, which he could end when he pleased. But each successive defeat was a cause of bitter anger. He began to plan the doctor's destruction once more. Three of the biggest complaints about Terror of the Autons on TV are rendered moot by the novelization. One of them is director Barry Letts' over-reliance on CSO. As producer of the show, Letts allowed himself to co-write one episode and to direct one episode per season. As both producer and director, Letts was fascinated by cost-saving methods, and CSO was most certainly that. Flash forward 51 years, and green screen technology is a mainstay of big-budget movie and TV production. Hello, Book of Boba Fett. But in 1971, the technology wasn't quite there yet. Let's ambitiously used CSO to stand in for a museum, or the inside of a lunchbox, in Terror of the Autons, but in the book, Terrence is unconstrained by budget, so the museum is actually a museum, and the lunchbox is actually a lunchbox. A second complaint has to do with Brown Rose, the man from the Ministry, who appears in a single scene in TV's Episode 3, to drop exposition about the discovery of the first wave of unexplained daffodil deaths. The doctor berates the poor fellow, and reveals that he's friends with Brown Rose's superior, Lord Rollins, whom the doctor knows as Tubby. The doctor reveals that he attends the same club as Rollins, and has already warned him about paper-pushing civil servants. But that's not in the book. It seems that Brown Rose was added by Dix and Orlets late in the game, after Holmes's involvement with the script ended, or that Dix just didn't like the scene and cut it out. Brownrose's exposition is reassigned to the Brigadier, and thus the image of the Doctor as an elitist snob who spends his days as a gentleman associating with lords, which irks a particular generation of Doctor Who fandom, is something you can pretend never happened, thanks to the book. Also missing is the off-screen character of Mr. Campbell, the electronic supplier, who Joe on TV memorably calls her Dolly Scotsman. The third and most serious complaint is that the Master switches sides too easily acting as the Auton's agent for 90 minutes, but then helping the Doctor defeat them at the merest suggestion that the Nestians will kill him along with everyone else once they complete their invasion. In the book, Terence rectifies this by adding several scenes showing how the Autons are displeased by the Master's constant side plots to kill the Doctor. 
One of those scenes makes the relationship between the master and the nestines explicitly similar to the wonderfully symbiotic and mutually beneficial relationship between a nail and a hammer. Quote, a spurt of ungovernable rage shook the master. You dare to criticize me? There was no emotion in the dead Auton voice. It could feel none. Flatly it said, I speak for the Nestine High Command. You risk failure in your principal task. Such failure will be punished. The master controlled himself with an effort. It was humiliating for him to depend on the help of these plastic puppets. The doctor also reminds the master, Your plan failed. You didn't fulfill your promises. The first act of the new Nestine rulers will be to execute you. The brigadier is present at this moment and offers to shoot the master if he doesn't cooperate. Quote, then there was the brigadier and his revolver. Time lords are immensely strong and resilient. They can live to an enormous age. They can change their appearance. They have many strange and mysterious powers, but they are not immortal. The bullets from a service revolver at close range would end the master's life as effectively as they would that of a mere human being. All in all, thought the master, perhaps it was time to change sides. Added moments like these make the novelization a joy to read. In fact, some moments have only gotten better with the passage of time. When the Master invades Unit HQ in the Episode 4 material to kill and later kidnap the Doctor, in the book, we learn that he hypnotized his way into the otherwise secure building. Quote, a number of Unit sentries firmly believe that they have just admitted the Prime Minister. Once the Master regenerates into John Sim in the year 2007, that's exactly who they've admitted. We also get an insight into the Doctor's thought processes as he sets about trying to defeat the Master. The following passage is worthy of James Bond himself. Quote, Beneath his apparent calm, the Doctor's mind was racing. He knew the Master would be unable to resist the opportunity to explain his own cleverness. The Doctor was relying on this to buy him time. Moreover, he really did want to know the answers. He wasn't dead yet. The more he could get out of the Master, the better. And so... What appears to be a standard assembly line novelization of a four-part TV story takes on unexpected dimensions when you go page by page and compare it to the TV product. It's certainly a good place to stop and examine just why Terrence is still celebrated today by Doctor Who fans. After the break, we'll wrap up the first half of our look at Terror of the Autons by comparing how he salvages the Part 4 material from TV. But first, a word from Roger Delgado. Good afternoon, Doctor. I hope I'm not interrupting anything important. No, no, indeed not. You've come here to kill me, of course. But not without considerable regret. How very comforting. You see, Doctor, you're my intellectual equal. Almost. I have so few worthy opponents. When they've gone, I always miss them. How did you get in here? No, don't be trivial, Doctor. I see you've been working on the Nestine Autojet. My own small contribution to their invasion plan. Mm. Vicious, complicated, and inefficient. Typical of your way of now, thinking. Now, come, come, Doctor. Death is always more frightening when it strikes invisibly. Tell me, how do you intend to activate these flowers? Oh, by radio impulse, which the Nestines will send. I shall open the channel for them. We've distributed 450,000 of these daffodils. So, when 450,000 people fall dead, the country will be disrupted. And in the confusion, the Nestines will land their invasion force. Exactly. It's a shame that you can't be here to enjoy the chaos and destruction with me. Goodbye, Doctor. You Wait, don't shoot! Doctor, you do disappoint me. We Time Lords are expected to face death with dignity. Oh, no! Don't worry. 
He's not going to kill me. That is your last mistake. If you fire that thing, you will never be able to leave this planet. You're bluffing on an empty hand, Doctor? I'm not bluffing, and my hand, as you can see, is not empty. If you kill me, you will destroy the dematerialization circuit from your own TARDIS. Something I have mentioned quite a bit on this podcast, particularly when it comes to a Malcolm Hulk story, is how the final episode of any given TV serial is usually given short shrift in the novelization. Hulk especially was good at condensing the final episodes of serials, such as Doctor Who and the Silurians, Colony in Space, or the Sea Devils, into just 10 or 12 pages of text, even after lavishing chapters and chapters, often more than a full quarter or third of the book, just on episode 1 alone. Terrence Dix, in books such as Auton Invasion or Day of the Daleks, also had an episode 4 page count much shorter than that of episode 1. Which brings us to the closing chapters of Doctor Who and the Terror of the Autons. Unusually for a novelization, the last episode, here episode 4, is given expanded treatment. Unlike a standard Hulk book, where on-screen action, usually chases and escapes, were condensed in favor of dialogue and character beats, in this novelization, Dix adds more action and more moments of tension to what had been the grand climax on television. The unit soldiers and the Autons had a few brief skirmishes in episode 4 of Terror of the Autons. In the book, though, Terrence runs over the top of the trench with a handheld camera and starts filming the action from the mist of the mud and the blood and the severed limbs. He writes, The Autons fought with savage and human ferocity. They were blown up with grenades, exploded by anti-tank guns, ripped apart with machine gun bullets, yet still they fought on. An Auton wasn't harmless, unless it was literally destroyed, shattered into tiny fragments. Soldiers were blasted by wrist guns and smashed to the ground by savage chops from the Auton's powerful arms. Severed Auton arms lashed about like dying snakes, spitting death until they too were shot to pieces. When unit troops blow up a battalion of Auton daffodil men late in the book, with no corresponding scene on TV to show how this happened, Terence writes that the aftermath in which the brightly colored daffodil men were destroyed, quote, looked as if a seaside concert party had been willfully massacred. Also, number one, I don't want to know how that particular comparison sprang into his imagination. Chapter 10 of the book ends with the Master, along with the Doctor and Joe, who he's recently kidnapped, expect them to be bombed to smithereens by a unit-ordered RAF airstrike on the Auton motor coach where the Master is hiding out. They, quote, all waited silently as the shriek of jets reached an ear-splitting crescendo and the bombers swooped down to attack. Except, that moment wasn't on TV. Stock footage of RAF bombers, yes. Two nervous Time Lords and Katie Manning peering at the sky, no. The Doctor and Joe's subsequent escape from the Auton motor coach in the book is complicated and prolonged by an Auton firing energy bolts at them through its handy wrist gun. The Doctor and Joe also take a little bit longer to recover after their fall from the moving vehicle. On TV, Joe sprains her ankle, because all female companions sprain their ankles in early Doctor Who, but in the book, it's the Doctor who remains sore and winded for a few more pages, and Joe's ankle remains happily unimpaired. But even while Dix is expanding on the TV action, there's still room for his trademark little character asides. The unit team gets a little more room to breathe in print, for one thing. We learn that Captain Yates, in his debut TV story, but not his debut novelization, has an Aunt Ethel, 
who has a bunch of deadly plastic daffodils in her home. There's also said to be a bowl of plastic flowers in the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. Joe, in a vast improvement from how Terence portrayed her in the first chapters of the book, develops great intuition and memory at the end, identifying Rex Farrell as the master's accomplice, because she recognized his picture from the mantelpiece at his parents' house. However, the book does not capture one nice moment in episode 4, presumably added for TV after Holmes' scripts were turned in, when the master reflects on the domineering iron will of Farrell Sr., whose death he previously orchestrated. One of the unsung heroes at the end of the novelization is Farrell Jr. Rex, it turns out, has inherited a bit of his father's domineering iron will after all, in a way that is much better explained in the book than on TV. Quote, Rex Farrell was slowly recovering consciousness. His body was one big bruise. But in spite of the pain, he was full of a savage joy. For the first time in days, his mind was clear. Somehow the shock of the threatened bombing attack and the pain of the blow from the Auton leader had broken the master's hypnotic conditioning. Once again, Rex Farrell knew who he was and what had been done to him. Now there was only one thought in his mind, to destroy the master. But Rex doesn't get to live a newfound, joyful life for long, as Terence gives Farrell that little bit of iron, only to cruelly snatch it away moments later. The book adds the scene, only implied on TV, why the master comes back to rehypnotize Farrell as insurance for his own escape. Quote, he saw the face he hated most in the world gazing down at him. The nightmare was not over after all. In another Hulkian paragraph, after a disguised Farrell is killed by Unit, who believed him to be the master, Dix gets in one last kick at the poor boy's corpse. Quote, hypnotized, disguised, and finally sacrificed, he had performed his last service for the master. Now he was free. The writing is not all perfect. There's a rare continuity error in chapter 10, where the master throws a captive Joe to one side, and then two paragraphs later, after Joe insults her from across the room, he releases her again, even though he'd never grabbed her back. But such quibbles are minor. Freed from the constraints of a slim budget, Dix, for example, finally gets to tell us what a nestine really looks like. Quote, it crouched beside the radio telescope tower, dwarfing it, a many-tentacled monster, something between spider, crab, and octopus. At the front of its body, a single huge eye glared at them, blazing with alien intelligence and deadly hatred. End quote. There's even an Alan Willow illustration of said creature in the book, just as Terence described it. Not on TV, though, where the final nesting was suggested only by blurred animation lines hovering in the sky and not by the depiction of any octopoid spider crab. Perhaps the production team had learned their lesson after the limp tentacle seen briefly at the end of Spearhead from Space. But speaking of the soon-to-be-departed genius of Alan Willow, check out his illustration of the Auton policeman with the comical, expressive, emotive face at the end of Chapter 6. Great picture! But perhaps he didn't quite get the brief about how flat and unemotional the Auton face masks were supposed to be. When the master finally escapes from the doctor at the end of the book, Terence adds an interesting beat, reflecting the soon-to-be ongoing dynamic between the two men, the TV chemistry between Pertwee and Delgado, adding an almost genial dimension to the doctor's and master's enmity. Quote, the doctor sat up slowly, shaking his head. He gazed after the coach as it rocketed away in a cloud of dust. For a moment, Joe was puzzled by his expression. Then she realized... The doctor's face held a sort of reluctant admiration. You know, doctor, 
said Joe suddenly. I think you've got a sort of sneaking liking for him. The doctor looked indignant. Like him? I can't stand the fellow. He's ruthless, depraved, totally evil. In fact, a thoroughly bad lot. Only... Only what, doctor? The doctor looked a little sheepish. Well, I do sometimes think the cosmos would be a duller place without him. And if that line of dialogue sounds familiar to fans of the five doctors, you're on to something. Joe gets nearly the last word in the book. Poorly, though the doctor may have treated her in the episode one material, by the end, Terence has put her onto something resembling an even footing with him. Joe knew that the doctor would never give up his dream of repairing the TARDIS, so he could roam once more through space and time as he pleased. But she couldn't help hoping, for her own sake, that he wouldn't succeed just yet. Coming up after the break, I discuss autons and American fandom with a very old friend of mine. Who's got the power, the power to read? Who looks into books for the answers we need? We're back now, and I'm very happy to be joined by a very old internet friend of mine from the Rec Arts Doctor Who days, Eric Javog. What's funny about the internet, Eric, is that I've known you for literally 30 years, and we've traded thousands of words together over email. This is the first time that I've ever actually seen you in person. Yeah, no kidding. It's uh, it's amazing what the written word can do, which is probably why you have this podcast, isn't it? We are all about celebrating the written word. Yeah. Uh, the kicker is that you and I were actually at the same galley probably about three or four years ago, but the convention was so big and the schedule was so tight that I managed to never actually see you face to face. Yeah, yeah, that happens at a galley. That is a big con. So, Eric, one of the most remarkable things about you is that you are heavily involved in two different fandoms, if you want to walk us a little bit through your two big passions. Okay, well, um, you, your listeners may have heard of this little show from Britain called Doctor Who. I don't think I need to go into a lot of detail for them about that. That's a little too obscure, yeah. Let's get yeah. to the more uh, noteworthy stuff. Yeah, so the other one where I actually became a fan of even earlier was The Wizard of Oz. And immediately, of course, a lot of you are thinking, oh, right, Judy Garland and a bunch of dancing midgets and green witches. No, no, my interest in The Wizard of Oz, I mean, you know, I know about the movie. I like the movie. I truly enjoy it. I have several, many copies of the movie. But that's just a peripheral to my main interest in Oz, which is the books. And so many people do not know that there's a, seri- a whole series of books. You know, L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz, he wrote 13 more books. And then when he died, his widow and the publisher said, hey, we got a good thing going here. Let's keep it going. So they got another writer. And it's been continuing for, you know, the, the official series went for 40 books. And now that the books are coming in the public domain, more people are publishing their own, writing their own stories. And it's just become a major phenomenon. And I have been a member of the International Wizard of Oz Club for over 40 years. I've been to, you know, several dozen Wizard of Oz conventions. Um, it's just, a, you know, it's because it's a big part of my life. And you have met, I believe, several of the surviving cast members. I believe the last surviving cast member finally passed away a few years ago, but you've probably met several of them. Well, uh, I wouldn't say... There's actually a handful of cast members around still. There were, oh wow, yeah, but I mean, of the main 
on-camera munchkins. The last one died a couple years ago, this is true. But there were actually some very young girls in the background. And a few of them are still around. There's actually a, a couple of people who other, worked on the film in other capacities. Um, Judy Garland's uh, camera stand-in. She didn't appear on camera, but she, you know, she would like help set up shots while Judy was at, you know, learning stuff at school. Just turned a hundred. Wow! I know. So, so she would have been sixteen or seventeen when she was on set, but not much. So. And I heard you over the summer on the Trap One podcast, to which I'm a contributor. But last year, a book was published, which was actually a Doctor Who slash Wizard of Oz crossover. Yeah, that was that was pretty amazing when that came out. I'm going, did they did they just write this book for me? And then the, immediately when I heard about this book, my first thought was, wait, do I buy one copy or two? Because if I only buy one copy, do I put in the Oz collection or the Doctor Who collection? Um, <laughs> the, the nice thing about Trap One is they kind of made the decision for me because they also want my my wife is I we met, I met my wife through Doctor Who fandom. Um, she's not she wasn't a Wizard of Oz fan when she met. In fact, she actually because she thought it was the movie and she was not a big fan of gathering on the TV every year and watching the movie with her family. She, when we first started going out and she found out I was an honest fan, she went, I don't know about this, but I said, here, here, read the book instead. You'll find out why I'm really interested in this. And so she came around. So she was on the podcast also. So I said, well, that just makes it easy. I ordered two copies of the book, one for each of us to read before the podcast. So now I have one book, one copy in each collection. That's terrific. Yeah. Now, how many, Eric, officially licensed Wizard of Oz books are there, starting with the very first oh, one? Oh, good grief. The, the problem is, because, like I said, because of the public domain, so many books now are in the public domain, trying to figure out what's an officially licensed book and is not has become really, really muddy. But, let's, like I said, they're in the main line, all from the same publisher, um, there were 40 novels and then there were a handful of other little short stories and stuff. And then, well, here's the thing. L Frank Baum, besides the wizard of Oz, he wrote other books that ended up in one way or another, all getting tied in together. So he actually created kind of an extended universe outside of just Oz. So let's just say trying to determine how many Oz books there are is a, a difficult science. My recollection is that you yourself have actually authored an Oz book. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't go so quite so far as say authored. I would say co-authored. A friend and I, a friend of mine, had this idea for a book. I said, you know what? This let me help you write it, and we um, wrote this book together many many years ago. So, and then we just got reprinted not too long ago from another publisher. And what's the name of that one? Uh, the name of the book is Queen Anne in Oz. Queen Anne of Oogaboo is a character in the eighth Oz book, TikTok of Oz. And we gave her a new adventure where she kind of, she was kind of, um, uh, in TikTok of Oz, she was kind of, she was more of a comic relief, would-be world conqueror, who of course didn't know just how big the world really was and it didn't last very long. So we kind of decided to give her a little story of her own and kind of redeem her and make her a, a little more pleasant of a character 
while still being kind of headstrong and gave her an adventure just just in Oz, not having to go out into the world and try and deal with other things like she did. And did you get to write for the principal characters from the original book, or were they more peripheral to your story? They were pretty on the periphery. We we were concentrating on characters who were in TikTok of Oz. Um, so if, if 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 you've seen the 1985 Disney movie Return to Oz, one of the characters in there is TikTok. He's from the books. He's got a big part. Um, but a lot of the characters were our own. But I think we did a good job, you know, in integrating them into the whole world of Oz, and and Dorothy shows up in the end. So. Now, we're here tonight, not so much to talk about Oz. This is the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, so we, we try and stick to the main theme. So going back to that more obscure show that some of my listeners n- might not be aware of, we're talking now about the 14th Doctor Who novelization. This was published in early 1975 by the titan of the line, Terence Dix, who published more books than any other, and this is Doctor Who and the Terror of the Autons. Yeah. And I saw you were holding up your copy before I hit record. We actually have the same paperback edition. Not the original, but with the uh, enormous squid with the bulging eye. Oh. The 1980s reprint. <laughs> so, how long have you been a Doctor Who fan, per se? Okay, this... It... This is an, it's an interesting it's an interesting story not quite like everyone else's. So what happened in high school? Uh, I grew up in I grew up in the Seattle area. Still live in Washington State, but I'm on, you know I'm out in the boonies now. And we were actually one of the in the mid '80s. We were one of the few places in the country that did not get Doctor Who on public television. Um, the big PBS station in Seattle basically were, were a little too highbrow and they thought they didn't, you know, they, they were above showing that kind of thing. So, um, ne- never saw it, but I did have a girlfriend in, in high school who had come from the Champaign-Urbana area and she knew about the show and she told me about it. And then the Seattle Weekly ran an article about it because it was running, um, a station, little station up in Bellingham, north of Seattle. Which it's actually closer to Vancouver, and they serve the Canadian market more than the U.S. market. So uh, there were people around who got the station. We did not because, well, at the time we didn't have cable. Year, t- few months later, we'll just say that. Um, I'm. It's summer. I'm. It's almost time for me to go off to college, and the cable guy comes. And we go ahead and say, oh, we're going to get cable at last. We're going to see all these shows that everyone else is. We're going we're gonna to get MTV. And <laughs> and the cable guy said, uh, maybe not right away. But anyway, I digress. But of course, we got the station out of Bellingham. So one of the first things, I mean, we're just, you know, my sister and I were just messing around on a Saturday night. We're flipping channels around all of a sudden. Uh, we see this strange show with. Uh, guy with a tall, you know, he was tall guy, curly hair, had a big scarf on, and he and this, um, this woman with dark hair were dealing with this monster without a head and some mad scientist who was building him and stuff like that. I'm going, oh, okay, this is interesting. I want to see this. But my sister's saying, let's, let's flip channels. Let's see. I was like, Arr. so yeah, halfway through the brain of Morbius was my first exposure to Doctor... My first actual real exposure to Doctor Who. So... 
So uh, um, I wouldn't say I was hooked, but I was definitely intrigued. Um, the following weekend, I went out of town for some, for some reason, and a friend of mine happened to have some Doctor Who tapes, so we plugged in the Android Invasion. No, okay, no, I remember now. I did, I did see it the following weekend, and this time my sister was out of town, so I was gonna get to sit and watch this thing all by myself without her interrupting. It was the Mask of Mandragora, because I'd missed the Seeds of Doom because I was out of town watching the Android Invasion. So uh, that that did it. Uh, a nice historical adventure with you know alien energies invading Renaissance Italy. I'm going okay. This is my kind of show. So, uh, and then a couple weeks later, I had to move to college, which happened to be in the same town as the TV station that was showing Doctor Who, so I was able to watch it every Saturday night. Um, got up to college, hooked up with the, the Doctor Who club up there right away, and I'm glad I did because I got a really deep dive into all Doctor Who at the time. The very first meeting I went to, they showed the three doctors. And I'm watching the three doctors and this, you know, this tall light bulb of a man with, you know, red, with big white hair comes on. And I knew immediately, yep, he's the doctor. He doesn't look like that other guy I've been watching, but I think he's, I'm pretty sure he's the doctor. And then of course the little guy with the beetle haircut comes on. I'm going, oh, definitely the doctor. And then the guy on the screen, I'm going, okay, he's the OG. And then the next, and then the next meeting, they had a camera copy of from Australian TV of the Mind Robber. Ooh, I know. And then about this time, tapes were coming over from Great Britain of the brand new Doctor Who stories with Colin Baker. So I've got, like I said, I got this pretty deep dive right away that year with, you know, all of Doctor Who up to that point. Plus, which every Saturday night, watch watch on TV, late night TV. There's Tom Baker until he turns into Peter Davison. So, you know, Whovians my age, or you know, from that era, they start. They all they did was watch the local PBS station, and some of them from a lot younger age, and they got to watch a lot longer. So I know, you know, my I'm a, I start off a little older. I was 19. Um. And I got all these other stories from, you know, from Britain, from Australia. So I got lots of stuff going on. How did you get into the books? Uh, it was not long after that, actually. I was still in college, you know, my first year, first or second year in college, I think it was. No, I was still that first year in college. And the college bookstore had a bunch of them. They were, you know, they were, and they were getting the new ones. So I thought, okay. All right, I'm not sure how deep a dive I want to do in this Doctor Who thing, but you know what? I know some of these are from stories that are missing. So let me go. I will go ahead and get the novels for the stories that I know I'm not going to be able to see. So the very first two I got were Galaxy 4 and The Mythmakers. And then and then a few weeks later, I went back, and there were some, some more new ones. So I, I cannot remember what the third one was. But then the fourth one, I realized almost immediately, okay, all right, I think I'm already hooked. It was The Twin Dilemma, which we had not, I had not seen yet. It was, uh, it turned out our station in Bellingham was one of the first places in the country to show the Colin Baker stories, but even that, you know, still hadn't shown it at that point. So I thought, okay, this is my chance to find out about this, because we, we hadn't seen it as part of our, um, we hadn't gotten the video for that either, or at least hadn't shown in the meetings. So 
totally new story for me. I thought, okay, grabbed it. And just started going and collecting and collecting and collecting and getting more and more and more. And I managed to, um, went to a convention about just a year later after I started um, in Spokane, other side of the state. And it turned out that was one of Ian Martyr's last conventions. And I wanted to get an autograph on one of his books. And I thought, man, I would really like to have gotten the Ark in space. And then it dawned on me, oh, right, there's a dealer's room. So I grabbed one and had him sign it. So I have <laughs> I have an autographed copy of The Ark in Space by Ian Martyr. And as I showed you earlier, my copy of Terror of the Autons is signed by Terrence Dix himself. I got this in 2014. It was probably one of Terrence's last U.S. conventions. Um, so in terms of Terror of the Autons, do you have any distinct memories of the first time that you read this book or the first time that you saw the TV episodes? Um, I'm trying to remember when I first saw, I think that might've been one we saw in one of the meetings in college, but then they, um, about a year, year and a half later, they got into the John Pertwee stories. They, they I mean, they you know, cycled through, of course, all the Tom Baker stuff and got, then got through to, you know, Peter Davison, no column, wait, or did they, yes, they did have Colin Baker that, that summer. And then they went back to John Pertwee. I don't know why they didn't go all the way back to Hardnell. I think that, but they did later. Um, I'm, I'll, I don't have any clear memories about watching it, but I do have some pretty clear memories about the book, believe it or not. And that's one of the few that I actually remember. You know, I, I last, I first read it, you know, 30, 40, you know, 30 some years ago. But I remembered enough of it so that when I reread it for this podcast, going, aha, uh-huh, I do remember that. Uh, one of the things that really struck me about the book was, I mean, you know, and if you watch the TV show, Joe's wearing the same outfit throughout the whole thing, and you can't get the right. impression it's all taking place just boom, 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 all, like practically all in one day. I think Terrence said, you know, maybe we can expand this a little out a little bit. So there's definitely a clear progression. There's like, you know, a few days later this happened. Um, I like that. You know, Joe would go, went to Ferris Plastics, did her interview, got hypnotized by the master. I hope I'm not spoiling anything for everyone. Sorry. And then, um, <laughs> and then she just goes off and does a couple more interviews. And so they, you know, the doctor and the brigadier are talking later and say, "No, we won't. We don't know which one she went to. She went to several. It might not have been the last one." So he he was able to give a little better scope and feel to the whole story. I think just to make it grounded a little more in in reality as, as much as you can ground doctor who in reality that is well if you have the story take place over several days rather than 90 minutes and you have a little bit of the characters in between right. uh, the action adventure sequences the story gets a little more breathing room yes. one of the things that i talked about earlier in this recording is how the dialogue in the book goes on for longer than on tv and there are more scenes that add a little more connective tissue to the plot. Right. But this is a book that comes out in 1975, so the book, of course, already is at least 10 years old by the time that you and I get our first copy. Mm-hmm. On television, this is Joe's first book, right. and it's the master's first, or I should say Joe's first story, and it's the master's first story. And it's the novelization of the season 8 premiere, because Barry Letts and Terrence Dix don't come onto the show until... Partway through season seven, 
they uh, Barry did not produce Spearhead from space, right. and they were kind of chafing against the season seven format. So season eight is their first season premiere. This is their first season premiere, right. and it's their chance to reformat the show. So you have shorter episodes, four or six instead of seven. You have a brand new companion, Joe. You have a brand new villain, the Master. Mm-hmm. You have the return of the Autons, but it's a slightly different plot coming at it from a slightly different angle. And of course, you also get the introduction to Mikey Yates. Because these books are written out of order, we've already talked on this podcast about The Doomsday Weapon, which is the novelization of Colony in Space. That is a later story. But when the books came out, that book was repurposed to be Joe's first story. Right, I remember that. And it's, I, I believe it's the first novelization to feature the master. There's a lot of new characters in this book, and Terrence is introducing them all at once. How does Terrence handle in the prose all these new characters? It's Joe's proper debut. It's the master's proper debut. It is Mikey Yates' proper debut. He does give some nice, I won't necessarily say background, but he certainly gives a lot of flavor, a lot of heft to the master. We, you know, we get from what he tells us, we get um, a nice little taste of just who the master is and why why he does what he does, that sort of thing. Um, it seems I don't recall Mike Yates being much more than he was on television. He's just like, okay, new officer. And he just jumps into the action. Um, Joe, I think, I don't think it's so much Joe is different, but everyone else's reaction to Joe, he's able to expand on in this book with, um, I mean, some more, a little bit more business about, her being foisted off onto the brigadier and how the brigadier then foists her off onto the doctor and that whole, you know, the, the doctor saying, uh, I, I need a proper assistant. I can't have her. And the brig says, all right, well then you tell her that scene. I think it felt to me, it got expanded a little bit more. We get a little bit more into the thought process of, especially the brigadier a little bit more into the doctor as well and how Joe wins them over with her eager earnestness and her actual abilities to find some information that they need. How does the third doctor himself come across? Cause Terrence has been writing for three different doctors now because he novelized several third doctor stories. Then he went back and he novelized the abominable snowman. So he's writing for Patrick Troughton for the first time. And then he jumps on ahead, and the book before this is the fourth Doctor's first TV adventure. But the third Doctor is the Doctor that he was there for. He was the script editor. He ghost-wrote many John Pertwee stories without screen credit. And he wrote, at least at the beginning of the line, he was writing for Pertwee a lot more than he was writing for Tom Baker. Later on, of course, he becomes the principal Tom Baker writer. But for now, he's heavily invested in this third Doctor in print. How do you compare his print third doctor to the John Pertwee, as you say, tall light bulb that we got on television? You know, John Pertwee has been such a distinctive doctor from just about all the other ones until I think, you know, Peter Capaldi comes along and he has a few of the same qualities. But for the most part, you know, John Pertwee's doctor is he's an he's he's more of a doer, but he's also very much um, the scientist. He is, you know, he is a 
how I'm trying to think how to describe this. He, he very much cares for the people around him, and he shows that to them. He, you know, we get, sometimes we get his thoughts about that. So I think I think the John Pertwee's Doctor in print, at least from Terrence Dix, is very much like the one you get on on screen. And the Master 2, of course, is, again, it's not his first novelization by a long shot, but this is where the character is properly introduced for the first time. The Doctor gets uh, the warning from uh, the Time Lord who materializes in midair. And one of the biggest criticisms, well, I say biggest criticism, that's a relative term, this is a pretty highly regarded story, but one of the few negative things that's said about the story is that the Master seems to switch sides very easily in Part 4. He's been working with the Autons for three and a half episodes to help the Nestian conquer the Earth. And the Doctor says, oh, by the way, they're going to kill you too. And he goes, LOLs, and all of a sudden he switches sides and helps the Doctor defeat the uh, Nestian consciousness. The book, of course, as you say, has a little more room to breathe. Do you think that Terrence does a better job of having the master's last minute change of heart make a little more sense plot wise I, I mean it always made enough sense to me on television even if it was kind of quick that it was it i don't i don't recall it being different in the book one thing what but one thing i do know one thing i that did strike me this time is every time the doctor foils one of the master's plans and you know, it gets away and is is still alive. Outwardly, calmly, he says, "Ah, yes. Well, I was just toying with him." But then we see behind closed doors the master fuming. It's like, "Ah, he got away again!" Ugh! So, and that wasn't on television. That was I thought that was a nice little addition to his characterization there. But as for the the switch, I mean, here's a you know. The master is the kind of and you I mean you can pick this up right away even in that very first story. The master is the kind of character, let's face it, who's looking out for number 1. He's he's not going to show any more loyalty to the nestines than the nestines are going to show to him. So uh it you know once he realized, "Oh right, maybe this is not working out as well as I thought." Yeah, it makes total sense for me that he would, you know, he would do what he did. One of the things that really works for me is that you don't often get a lot of master POV scenes in his novelizations, right? Right. Especially when it comes to Anthony Ainley and some of the more outlandish plots that the Ainley master was forced to carry. When you're reading, uh, for example, the novelization of The King's Demons, the author of that book doesn't spend a lot of time going into the master's head and trying to explain why bringing a robot to 1215 England and trying to upend the Magna Carta is a good idea. Terence, though, right, he's the co-creator of the master. He is heavily involved in the character's origin. And when, when Terence Dix passes away, the very first story aired after Terence Dix dies is a master story. And they put up a title card at the end of the episode saying dedicated to the masterful Terrence Dix, which is a wonderful tribute. So, uh, for my money, in this book, Terrence actually narrates several scenes from the Master's point of view. And 
it seems to me that he, you can outline his mounting frustration with the autons and how he realizes he's not being treated with the respect that he feels he so richly deserves. So again, later master books are not going to do this, especially the slimmer ones. Um, but this is a longer book. This is, what is it now? This is 122 pages. So this is about 10 pages longer than Robot, which came out the previous month. Yeah. So there is time here for Terrence to get into the master's head, and we get as much time inside the master's head as we do the doctor's. Another scene I really liked is where the doctor goes to Rossini's circus, yeah. and on TV there's you know a quick montage of, of circus animals. In the book, the doctor actually takes the time to ride a carousel yeah. and pat the horse on the head as he's dismounting, which is a wonderful little character moment. Very John Pertwee. Extremely John Pertwee. Extremely doctorish, too, for that matter. Right, and that's just that's just Terrence Dix putting that in there. It's just a wonderful thing to have. So we've talked about Joe, we've talked about the Doctor, we've talked about the Master, and we've talked a little bit about Mike Yates. I know I mentioned earlier in the recording before you joined us how Mike Yates does have this weird thought process about whether or not he ought to grow a mustache or a beard in flouting of army regulations. But this is a pretty big story for the Brigadier as well, because as you say... He's been given Joe Grant, who he doesn't want, and his first reaction is to pass her off on to the doctor. How do you think uh, Terrence handles the brigadier in this book? Just fine. Um, you know, he's... He, clearly, he knows the brig well. He knows Nick Courtney well. So, um, yeah, he he comes off the page just like he does on television, I feel. Uh, the, the nice, but the nice thing, like we've been talking about with all the other characters, we're able to get a little bit more into the Briggs head and what, what he's thinking. It's like, okay, what, what's the doctor up to now? What am I going to do with this young experienced young agent who I've just been, who's just been passed on to me, that sort of thing. So, um, it, it's, a I, it's a good accentuation of the character. We get, a, you know, we get more brigginess. I like that. More brigginess. I just came up with that. Or to uh, misquote Will Smith, uh, getting briggy with it. <laughs> um, let, let's not. Yes, let's, let's not, but just say we did. <laughs> so you were talking earlier about some of the conventions that you were at in Washington State in, in the mid-80s, and you actually got to meet Ian Martyr. Uh, for me, I didn't go to a lot of conventions as a youngster, because I got into the show when I was 11 years old, and uh, yeah. even in the 80s, 11-year-olds weren't going off by themselves into the uh, big bad canyons of Manhattan to go to their own cons. I was dependent on family members. So at my first con in 85, I know Matthew Waterhouse was there. I never got to see him. So I didn't actually meet a, a real Doctor Who person face-to-face until I was at the Visions Convention in Chicago in 1996. And then I was able to meet a bunch of people. And then the following year, I got to meet Peter Davison and Fraser Hines at the same con. And I got their autographs. Right. And that was a very positive experience for everyone. However, you, I get the impression, were going to a lot of cons in the 80s and 90s. And you probably got the chance to see a lot more uh, of the older school Doctor Who actors and behind-the-scenes people than I did. Is that true? Not, I didn't go to that many cons. I lucked out at this one convention in Spokane you know, right after I became a fan, um, there were, I, they, um, not, 
we've been, oh, wow, we've just been a year later. The uh, Doctor Who Fan Club of America, when they got going, they had the big trailer that went around the country, and they came to both Bellingham, where you know the where I was watching the show, and then they went down to Tacoma, where the PBS station down there had just started playing Doctor Who. And boy, I got some stories to tell you about that. Um, Go ahead. So I'll, I'll get to that. But um, and so we got. Um, I, in fact, I actually got to sit in Bessie. At the Bellingham one. Oh, I know. Wow, that was that the original Bessie that was flown overseas, or was this a mock-up that was made for the states? Uh, as far as I know, it was the original Bessie. So, That's got to be a real thrill sitting I in know Bessie. It was, and I wish I could find a picture of it. But, but of course, the two big guest stars that they had at both at both of those events were uh, John Pertwee, and that was my first encounter with him. And oh my. And the brand new doctor, Sylvester McCoy. He had, I mean, they had just shown his first episode in Britain. We had never even seen any at this point, but they bring him over here to publicize the show. And uh, he made a pretty good impression right away. So so let me get this straight then. You're at the single con in the autumn of 87. Yeah. And you've got John Pertwee mm-hmm. and Sylvester McCoy. Mm-hmm. At the same convention at the same time. Right. That is an odd pairing because you don't associate those doctors with one another because the story quality and the story focus and the acting performances were so wildly different. What were the two of them like in the same room? Well, what they did was um, in Bellingham, they brought out Sylvester McCoy and then right at the end of the presentation, it's like, oh, and by the way, here's John Pertwee. And he comes out and waves and says hello and says a few words. Down in Tacoma, they did the opposite. They had John Pertwee come out and do some stuff, and then said, "Oh, and by the way, here's Sylvester McCoy." Actually, uh, I should probably say in Tacoma it was a little. We had a little bit more Sylvester because what they did. Um, one of our lo- one of the local fans um, had managed to get a. Co- it had just been shown what four days earlier in the UK. He had a video of episode one of Time and the Ronnie. So this became a major part of this thing, and we, and he, uh, unfortunately, because of technical limitations and stuff, we could only watch it in black and white. But it was still a thrill. And then, of course, the man comes out. So that's McCoy. So it, they, I, but the two of them together, it was just, it was, it was just a lot of mutual admiration. It's like what I think what happens a lot of the times when any of two doctors get together. It's like, oh, you were in that too. So, or in the John's case, it was like, oh, you're in it now. Yeah. One of my abiding regrets was I never got to meet John Pertwee because I decided early on in the 80s that he was my favorite doctor, especially once I got to see his entire era front to back, probably in 87 or so. I would have been about 13. Um, I just wasn't going to enough conventions. Like I said, I didn't go to my second con until November 96. He had died in New York a few months earlier. And I've always wanted to meet him, and it's just a tragedy that I never got to. So what was it like meeting him in person? What kind of energy did he bring? Did you get to speak to him? Tell us a little bit yeah, about that. Yeah, I mean, seriously, he was – what you saw on television was – well, at least that's the Im- public image he presented at, at the con. I mean, he, even, he, he, he was even – his costume. He had the smoking jacket and the ruffled shirt. So um, 
just, you know, he'd leap out and say, I am the doctor. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I know. Uh, but, you know, he was, you know, here's the thing. I, I think more than just about any of the other doctors, John Pertwee was basically a showbiz legend. Even, you know, even when he became the doctor, and of course he kept going afterwards. So he was definitely, he was definitely on, he was definitely putting on a performance the whole time. Um, I've gotten the chance to interview Colin Baker, Peter Davison, and they, they just, you know, just behind the scenes, they struck me as a little more down to earth and they weren't trying to put on a show. John Pertwee just the whole time on. So... Um, it's like Joe DiMaggio said, talking about baseball, he always played his hardest because every time he went to the ballpark, there was somebody in the stands who had never seen him before. <laughs> that That is that's actually not a bad approach to doing things, yes. I, I like to, you know, people. there are people who complain about this and that doctor, blah, blah, blah. I always like to point out, hey, listen, every doctor is some some kid in Britain at the very least. That's their first doctor. And so every every you know every doctor develop brings new fans to the show who then go back and discover all the older doctors too. I was just gonna say a pair. Uh, I've uh, on the Verity podcast, great podcast by the way. Second, oh, yes. second best to this one. Um, oh well, that's this being a little more charitable than you need to be, I think. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, there uh, anecd- uh, an anecdote about this one very young uh, Doctor Who fan in Australia who's all who's aghast. And a gog when she found out that the doctor had once been a man. Oh. <laughs> oh. So I mean, this I mean, you you know, every new doctor, no matter how much us old, no matter what us old school fans think, they're bringing in new fans to the show. And at some point, you know, twenty years from now, those kids who are will some of them will be making the show, and some of them will be writing in the fan press or where, whatever the equivalent is. Like, oh, remember the good old days when Jodie Whittaker was the Doctor? That was when they really knew how to make the show. It's not the same anymore. So, it reminds me of the uh, joke that went around in the '70s when Paul McCartney was very big with Wings, and the younger kids had no idea that Paul McCarty had been in any band before Wings. But you're right, I am looking forward to the day when Jodie Whittaker is the main doctor in people's minds, and then any male doctor after her is not going to measure up. (laughs) That'll be a nice bit of turnaround to this not-my-doctor crowd, which is one of the most annoying parts of the Twitter and YouTube experience these days. Uh, I'm really looking forward, actually, to see who who the next doctor is, just because... I mean, you know, now that we've done that, it's like the sky's the limit. Anyone, you know, we've had, we've had an Indian actor play the master. Now we've had a woman play the doctor. We've had, well, now we've had a black woman play the doctor too. So, I mean, that's right. Sky's the limit. You can have anyone you, well, okay. They still got to be British. So you're not quite ready to have the, uh, Kevin Costner doctor or the, uh, or someone in the British press overheard someone say, "Oh, you know, David Hasselhoff looks a little bit like Tom Baker." I don't see it myself. But oh. then that that reporter then ran with it and said, "David Hasselhoff is going to be the next Doctor." I do vividly remember that was, and then 
And then shortly after that, there were the rumors that Pam Anderson from Baywatch was going to be the next companion. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like you know, these, these stories that are going about now that David Tennant's going, now going to return as the Doctor. My suspicion what happened there is someone overheard something about maybe David Tennant will return for the 60th anniversary. Right. And then, but then they read a little too much into it and said, and then he's going to keep staying on for the show. So the only way that would work for me, and I realize that nobody consulted me or asked me. Yeah. The only way it would work is if he is playing a completely different character with a different physical look and his native accent instead of uh, RP and a completely different personality. I don't need to see three or four more seasons of the same old 10th Doctor because, you know, we've had that already. A Doctor who needs to keep moving forward and reinventing himself. Right. The same way that Barry Letts and Terrence Sticks take what is arguably pound-for-pound pound Doctor Who's best year, season seven, where every story is better than the one before, and then they blow up the format and reinvent things for season eight and give us the Master and Joe and shorter, faster stories. So even as amazing as the David Tennant years were and as much as it really helped the show take root, both in the UK and in the States, not to mention everywhere else internationally, you just can't go back to that because otherwise all you need to do is watch reruns. You need to have a new doctor with a new personality and breaking new barriers. I think Russell Davis is a big enough fan of the show. He understands the format well enough that, no, he's not going to do what, I mean, you know, all these fans are saying, oh, the show's going to be like it was back in 2005. I don't think it will be at all. Russell David, you know, he's had another dozen years experience making television since he left the show. He's going to, and plus, you know, he has seen three more Doctors, four if you count Joe Martins, since he left the show. He's going to say, right, I got all these new toys in the sandbox to play around with, what am I going to do with those to make it even more exciting? Russell Davis is just that kind of creator. He's not going to rest on his laurels and do what he did before. And since he started with the, the Doctor Who relaunch, he has given us you know, some incredibly powerful short-form serials like Torchwood Children of Earth, oh, yeah. which is only five episodes but is devastating. Last year there was It's a Sin, which is only five episodes but is devastating. You can imagine someone like Russell T. Davies could take the Flux idea, which is a single, self-contained, six-part story, and just make it incredibly powerful and unforgettable. But if he just goes back and does the same, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007 format, I think it's going to fall flat because the younger fans now, as you say, are used to Jodie Whittaker. They're used to Sacha Dewan as the master. They're not going to want to go back to the same old, tired storytelling where every principal character is, is, a, is a white male except for the companion yeah i you know uh, and like and plus but here's the thing the whole timeless child revelation i think that opens up so many possibilities for storytelling that you know look, i mean i know there are people who hate it i know they want to put that genie back in the bottle but here's the thing you know i like to point out hey listen back in the 70s there were fans who hated Genesis of the Daleks because it did not follow what they all thought was early out Dalek history. You know, they they were upset it wasn't following the old um, TV comic Dalek stories. There were fans who were upset at the Deadly Assassin 
when it first started because it did not follow the mythology they built up about Gallifrey in their own heads. And of course, now those are to regard as two of the all-time greatest Doctor Who stories, certainly of the classic era. So I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to see, and I'm just rec- more recently, I'm thinking how fandom has reassessed the Graham Williams era. He, when I was, you know, started off, he was, he, he, he was seen as the one, the guy who turned Doctor Who into a joke. And now, when I joined Record, oh, sorry, yeah, when I joined Records Doctor Who, you know that season between Destiny and Creature from the Pit mm-hmm. and Nightmare and Horns of Nymon, those were the least popular stories. Yeah. But when you go back and watch them now, especially with the season seventeen Blu-ray coming to the states, yeah. with the possible exception of Nightmare of Eden, which I have some issues with, every story that year has elements of a Stone Cold classic in it. Mm-hmm. And then you can go back and bring back David Gooderson and have him recreate his Davros on the Blu-ray and make some changes. It's just a glorious thing that we're getting these sets yeah. that allow us to re-examine these stories without all of the old prejudices or, or the received fan wisdom, right? Right. And I want to build on what you said earlier about the timeless children. You know, if you just tell a good story, it doesn't matter what you do to the canon because Genesis of the Daleks proved that and Deadly Assassin mm-hmm. proved that. Yep. You now have this infinite number of Doctors. What I am desperately hoping for, for Jody's final episode, which is probably about seven months away now, yep. and I'm, I'm sure now that I've asked for it, we're not going to get it. And, of course, it's already been filmed, so they're not going to yeah. change the story because of my ramblings on some low-traffic uh, podcast. What I would love to see is a story that tells the same plot from two tracks, the Joe Martin Doctor and the Jodie Whittaker Doctor in two different time streams fighting the same villain. And they both are forced to regenerate at the end of the story. And Jodie Whittaker will regenerate into whoever the 14th Doctor is going to be. And then Joe Martin regenerates into David Bradley standing in for the late William Hartnell. That is my headcanon for what the Jodie finale should be because you need to tell Joe Martin's story. She's had a few cameos. You need to have a story where she is a significant part of the plot engine. So having two doctors fighting the same villain, both dying, and turning into David Bradley, and then our new doctor, that would be, I think, dramatic, you know, grab you by the by the next storytelling. Yes. And I am just desperate for it to happen. And it's already been filmed. We don't know what it's about. Yeah. Hopefully I can do a victory lap in seven or eight <laughs> months and say, I told you so, I told you so. There, there, There's the... the young pedantic Doctor Who fan in me who would say, yeah, well, yeah, but then we didn't see Joe Martin's Doctor in the brain of Morbius when we went back beyond William Hartnell. So I would, I, that part of me would discount that, but b- because of that. My my current fan theory, and I know sometime it may change depending on what happens. My current theory is if the brain of Morbius cameos, if we'd gone back one more, before the whole thing exploded, it would be Joe Martin. But exactly. Yeah. Um, I was gonna add something there. So, in your head canon, what is the ideal way for Jody's final story to go out? Oh, good grief! I, you know, I. The people who make Doctor Who are so much better at the at anything I could come up with. To be honest, I'm as much as I enjoy the show. I don't think I have. 
my creativity is not extensive enough that I could dare write or create a Doctor Who story, at least along those lines. So I'm just gonna I'm just I'm just gonna sit back and I'm gonna just let them surprise me. Just show me what you got, folks. That's a healthy approach, and I wish a lot of these not my doctor slash angry Twitter YouTube people would just take your approach and just enjoy the stories for what they are. Because the stories certainly never run out. I mean, it used to be I'd try and squeeze every, try and fit it all in together in some bit of logical timeline. The more I did it, the let's just, you know, that way lies madness. So I just said, you know what, listen, this is a show with time travel. Every time the Doctor steps out of the TARDIS, he might be changing history. We don't know. And then, of course, there's a big freaking time war. Who knows what that's done? And then there's a couple, since then, the Doctor's reset the universe a couple of times. It's just, it's just not worth the effort, frankly. Because, you know, we keep seeing it all the time in the show. As soon as we think we know something... They come and make some change in the show that blows it all up. So, there goes my idea that I spent all this time working out and making it all perfect and wonderful. It's like, oh, never mind. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, before we wrap up, we're coming to the end of our hour. Let's do a quick lightning round. Okay. What is your favorite novelization? Oh, boy. You would ask that. I, it's been so long since I've read most of them, too. Um, okay, you know what? Since I do remember, I did remember more of this than I remembered mo- most others, I'm going to say Terror of the Autons. That's a great choice. Yeah. I mean, this is, when I had the chance to meet Terrence Dix in 2014, I didn't want to bring my entire collection with me. I, I brought the four books that I thought were most representative of his of his work. And this is this is one of the four that I brought. So I'm certainly proud. I, I'd forgotten that I had him sign this. So when I opened it up and saw his name in it, it was a huge lump in my throat a couple of days ago. And I'm really glad that I made that choice, uh, you know, back seven, eight years ago now. Who do you think is the best novelization writer? And you don't have to say Terrence Dix, right. but of course there's no wrong answer. Uh, I, I'm te- Some of those writers who did, who wrote their, who did their own stories for, the seventh doctor did some amazing stuff. I think I'm going to go. I mean, I know he only did the one novel. I'm going to say Ben Aronovich on remembrance of the Daleks. Just an absolutely astounding book in every respect for sure, because he blew up what the novelization could be. He was telling scenes from the point of view of Davros point of view of a Dalek embryo. He actually climbed inside the Dalek casing and tried to think the way that a Dalek would, which none of the other novelization writers had done. He brought a literary sensibility and this is, of course, called the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. Right. So when I get to that book in a couple of years, that's going to be a blowout of an episode for sure. Yeah. So he's certainly a good choice. I, th- I think Remembrance is the prototype for the new adventures, basically. In fact, there, you know, there's that one reprint line they did at one, you know, a few years ago. And every Doctor got a representative novel. And everyone got one, you know, one of the new adventures or some of those post cancellation novels except for sylvester got remembrance of the daleks now you have written oz fiction yourself you've been published and as you said earlier you've been republished if you had the chance if you were given the contract to novelize one doctor who story past or present 
even if a novelization already exists, what's the one story that you would want to write yourself? That's... While you are thinking on the answer, and I realize that was a hideously unfair question, I'll give you my answer. Okay. And again, it's already been written, and it is a phenomenal book, and I've been lucky enough to have interviewed the author for Trap One, and I hope to get him on this show someday as well. John Peel's Dalek's Master Plan is one of probably the top 10, if not top 5 targets of all time, yeah. because it's so detailed and so rich. I would love to novelize the last two episodes of Dalek's Master Plan. So the Abandoned Planet, which is episode 11, and the Destruction of Time. But I would narrate it in real time from Sarah Kingdom's point of view. Because remember, Hartnell was sidelined for episode 11. You had the production team was trying to get rid of him. Episode 11 is basically Stephen and Sarah by themselves. And this puts Sarah up to the point where she realizes that she has to sacrifice herself to save the universe to carry the Time Destructor. I would just do those two episodes in a single, you know, 120, 140 page target length book and get as deep into her head as I can. That, of course, might be a difficult reading, but if I were to write one target novelization, if I were handed the keys for one book, that's the one that I would do. So that's where I'm going. How about you? Now that you've had a chance to think about it, what's the book that you would write? Okay, I've believe it or not, I've actually talked to uh, the writer of the TV episode of this, Paul Cornell. Um, I knew him way back in the old days before he became a big name Doctor Who writer. Uh, and I, I just casually asked him online one time, "Hey, when the novelization started up again, I said, are you going to do Father's Day?" And he said, "Yeah, probably not." So. I would go, I think I would, I mean, of course, this is my answer today. If you ask me this next week, I might come up with something totally different. But today, I'm going to say Father's Day. Just because there's, you know, you could have so many interesting, you know, different um, layers of time going on there. And, you know, what what do the Reapers really do? And, um, you know, get into people's heads about what's going on. Um... You know how how does how's Rose really feeling about seeing Pete? How's Rose really feeling about young Jackie? Um, there, I mean, there's lots of things you could do there, and I and let's face it, it's a pretty phenomenal story too. It's funny that you mentioned that because I'm in the middle of my pilgrimage, which I started in October 2020. Here we are, February 2022. I just finished Utopia last night, so my next episode up is going to be The Sound of Drums followed by Last of the Time Lords, right? Right. So that means I just finished Human Nature slash Family of Blood a couple of days ago, and I put you know rave reviews on my Twitter feed, which is where I've been live blogging my way through the series for the last 18 months. So I went back, and I've been reading my copy of Human Nature, uh, yeah. because that, of course, is the Seventh Doctor slash Benny New Adventure on which the TV episode with the Tenth Doctor and Martha is based. So it's fascinating to go back and reread that after I've seen the TV episodes and see the things that Paul put in the novelization that did not get included on TV, or to see the things that Russell changed for the novelization to make it more filmable on television, because some of the politics and some of the characters in the book, it's it's too intense, you couldn't put it on television. But my favorite part of the book is 
so the doctor's teaching at this British public school, right? And he's a, he's, he's teaching history, and he's obviously being very Sylvester McCoy and clownish and making puns and doing magic tricks in the classroom. So early on in the book, the headmaster calls him on the carpet for improper and inappropriate behavior and tries to lecture him on the school's motto. The school's motto, in Latin translated into English, is bigger inside than out, which of course is, you know, the tagline for Doctor Who's own timeship. This is a great little twist for for the novel, which they couldn't get. It, just, it, it wouldn't, make, wouldn't make any sense to put it on television. There was no room for it. Right. But it's a great thing to read in the book, and I'm really glad that it's there. Yeah. I did ask Paul, hey, are you just going to go go ahead and do a slight rewrite, change some of the descriptions of the Doctor, and reprint Human Nature? He said, uh, no. But... Which reminds me, after Francis Ford Coppola came out with the movie Bram Stoker's Dracula in the early to mid-90s, somebody actually was commissioned and wrote the novelization of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is one of the most perverse novelizations of all time because you're novelizing the movie of one of the most famous novels ever written. There's just no comparison. <laughs> so novelizing the uh, novelizing human nature, it, it wouldn't work. It, just, it wouldn't translate as well. No. But it would be an interesting experiment, I think. So. so Eric, where can we find you online? Do you have any uh, projects or things you want to draw to our attention? Uh, yeah. Uh, online, I'm actually do more Wizard of Oz stuff than Doctor Who stuff. So you can find my website at the Wizard of Oz, all one word, no separations, dot info. So if you, if you want to know more about this whole Wizard of Oz phenomenon outside the movie, or even some interesting stuff about the movie, uh, go there. Um, uh, my book, Queen Anne and Oz, you can find that on Lulu. Uh, and then for Doctor, if you're a Doctor Who fan, especially if you're in the Pacific Northwest, I do run a little, a modest little Doctor Who club in out here called the Emerald City Andragums. Our website is andragums.org, and you can find us on Facebook as well. And finally, I also uh, consult with um, KBTC, the public, the PBS station in Tacoma, on you know their Doctor Who output. So every January and June, they say, hey, what should we show for our pledge drive? And I come up with some, some often something thematically intriguing. We just had last year, last year we had, uh, we had Terror of the Autons and Claws of Axos to celebrate 50 years of the Master. All comes back to Terror of the Autons, it does, doesn't yes. it? All right, Eric, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Well, thank you for uh, having me, Jason. It was great finally actually meeting yeah. you, or I guess by by video, actually seeing you for the first time after all these years of trading Doctor Who thoughts. Yeah, no kidding. All right, have a great night. You too. Hip, hip, hooray! Hooray! To save the day. Thanks again to my guest, Eric, for joining me and taking a trip down memory lane to discuss Doctor Who fandom in the 1980s and our exposure to the books. Next time will actually be the last time for Joe Grant, as Target quickly shifts from the novelization of her TV debut to the novelization of her TV finale. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, 
I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor. It can also be found on Spotify and Google Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels. That's Dr. Who Novels. And you can also find me on the Trap One podcast from time to time. I write about Doctor Who on Twitter using the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage. That's Dr. Who Pilgrimage. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Next time, we'll be discussing Doctor Who and the Green Death from August 1975. Then again, joined by a very special guest. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages.